good morning. It's a privilege to be here. Hopefully my mic is working and on. Uh, I, uh, it's, it's interesting when Mike uh, was getting a few of us to be guest preachers and saying he was on going on sabbatical. It reminded me, I, I just got off sabbatical. I was able to go on sabbatical last summer for two months as well. And so uh, just know that that uh, Mike, I'm sure, would love y'all's prayers, and uh, but that it's actually, it will be a really great time um, for him to be on sabbatical and take a rest, because I know he has been serving all faithfully for several years now, so, um, so I'm excited for him to get to do that, as I was able to do that last year. And it's a great privilege to talk to y'all this morning. I'm glad I'm finally able uh, to come and be with y'all. And uh, this, this sermon, this passage, is actually a pretty personal sermon to me. Uh, because it's something that I, I've struggled with uh, my whole life, um, of living more like Babel, and, and, and we'll get into that in a second, but especially in ministry at Rhodes College. Uh, if y'all don't know Rhodes College, it's this liberal arts school, very academic, very driven, uh, with students who really want to make their name great in the world. And so this is sort of a theme passage uh, for Rhodes College, um, but I also think it applies to all of us as well. Um, so let me, uh, let me read Genesis 11. We're just going to do 11, 1 through 9. And then in a little bit, we're going to read 12, 1 through 3 as we contrast the Tower of Babel with the call of Abram. Will you look with me, um, look on the PowerPoints or in your Bibles, Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And, let, and they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower and the ch and the, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is the only, only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray. Hey, Father, I thank you again for your word. I pray that it would be an encouragement to us this morning as we think about um, greatness and what it means to be great, Lord, I pray that you would be with us uh, this morning and you would encourage us with your gospel. I praise your name. Amen. So I have a son, William. Um, he's, he actually just turned 16. Uh, but, uh, but several years ago, uh, back when he was only about three years old and uh, my, my daughter Lizzie was about one, and I still remember we were sitting sort of in our living room and my daughter had just sort of begun, uh, be begun to walk a little bit. So, and she was doing that sort of Frankenstein-like thing where she would take a couple steps and is she gonna fall over or not? Maybe not. Um, and she would keep going. And you know, of course, my wife and I were taking pictures. We have to send it to the grandparents. We have to send it to friends um, um, and be excited for our daughter who's just starting to walk. And um, at about that time is when, you know, if you have several children, maybe you've spent, been focused on one, you realize, you know, you start to wonder, where is the other child? It's been too quiet. And, and my, my other child, William, all of a sudden I hear this kind of running, and he comes uh, down the hallway around the corner and all out tackles my daughter Lizzie 
and kind of takes her to the ground. Um, and, and I remember these two things, uh, you know, obviously crying, crying occurs, uh, my wife is beside herself, and I remember these two thoughts come into my mind at the same time. One thought is, uh, is extreme concern for my daughter Lizzie, who's just been tackled uh, by her older brother, and then the other was, uh, that looks like a really good tackle. Maybe my son has a, has a future in football. And, you know, but, and, and Lizzie's fine. Uh, William, I mean, William is sent to his room. Uh, you know, as soon as we find out, you know, very few minutes later, Lizzie's back up, no harm, you know, doing her little cute Frankenstein walk again. And of course, my wife looks at me, tells me uh, that I need to go talk to my son, to your son, which I don't know why he's just my son, he's her son too, but, uh, but she told him to go, go talk to your son. So I go back to the bedroom and William is sitting, you know, sitting on the bed, sort of just kind of with a curious look on his face. And, and I sit down next to him and I'm like, William, why did you just tackle your sister Lizzie? Why did you do that? You know, why would you do that? And he looks at me with complete seriousness and he says, Daddy, I am a great evil robot hunter. And Lizzie is an evil robot. And evil robots must be taken down. And uh, I, I think I should have won Dad of the Year at that point because I didn't laugh. I, you know, I, I, kept, I kept it back. Uh, I was like, William, you are not, you are not an evil robot hunter. You know, and we went into like why he thought he was an evil robot hunter for a little bit. And, and I was like, William, you're not an evil robot hunter. In fact, you are Lizzie's older brother. And your purpose is not to hunt evil robots, as fun as that may be. Your purpose is to be an older brother to your sister, to look out for her, to take care of her, and not, you know, to tackle her, not to hurt her. And William sort of reflected on that for a minute. And he was like, but daddy, being an older brother is boring. I, it's much cooler to be an evil robot hunter. And, and so we talked more about that. And, and he is, hey, as we've gotten older, he is a great older brother. And, and I always think of this story when I think sort of about our purpose and the way we view ourselves and, and what we want to be. Because while this was sort of an absurd bit of kind of imagination by my son William, the more I thought about it, you know, isn't this really the way I think, you know, about the world and about myself? I mean, I love the thought of being great. I love the thought of doing something cool, of being part of something great. You know, I especially, for me personally as a pastor, I especially desire to be great at ministry to be great at relationships. You know, I want to be a great college minister. I want my name to be great. I want other college ministers and other people to think that I am great, that, that, and, and for me to have a great name when they think of the name John Kraft, I want to be known. You know, most of, and most of my life, beginning with doing a youth internship at 19, you know, I always wanted to sort of be a ministry rock star. I wanted to be known as being great at ministry, being a great teacher. Uh, and, and so I'm not that much different than my son, William, because when it comes to ministry, you know, and not just ministry, but to my life as a friend, as a roommate, then as a husband, then as a father, I want to be awesome. I want my name to be great. 
And the people in Babel here in Genesis 11, they wanted to be great as well. They wanted to be awesome. In Genesis 11, the people of Babel gathered together and decided in verse 4, they say, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We see that Babel desired to make a name for themselves. They make lofty plans to kind of build a tower that reaches God. And we see this throughout the ancient world. You build great wonders to show how great and powerful you are. This was how, you know, you could intimidate and impress other nations and other people who might try to conquer you. You know, we see this today with when you want your brand to do well, when you want your corporation or company to look good, you build a very large building and put your name on the top of it because it is impressive. It shows that you are great. So we still even practice this today. And so here we see the kind of the beliefs of Babel. They're set out here. They assume that making a name for yourself is their purpose for living, that they were made to make a name for themselves. They assume that making a name for themselves, if they can do it, will then eliminate their fear, eliminate their insecurity, that it will make them happy. So their identity then, the way they think about themselves, what they try to do, they put it all in what they do, in their performance, in their talents, in their accomplishments, in their appearance. And if they perform, if their name is made great, then happiness than a life free of shame and fear, they think. And I ask you, where do you find your worth? What makes you feel good about yourself? Do you think this, do you think like the way of Babel? Is this the way you practice as well? That you wake up every morning thinking, how can I be great? You know, how can others see me as awesome today? Uh, a very old movie now, my college students always roll their eyes when I talk about it, uh, but Chariots of Fire, way back uh, in the 80s, uh, and there's this character named Harold Abrams, it's about Olympic runners, and there's a one point in the, in, in the movie where uh, as he's about to run the 100 meters, you know, uh, and try to win a gold medal, he says that he has to 10 lonely seconds to justify his existence. He has 10 seconds to justify his existence. And you think about that, that that's often, that all this training, if he can win, then his name will may be made great. But if he fails, he's a failure. And so I ask you, how do you justify your existence? What is your meaning in life? For my students at Rhodes, it is success. It is grades. It's how much attention they get from guys and girls. It is how uh, they compete athletically, how strong they are. For many of you, it may be your bank statement. It may be your job title. It may be the way your kids behave in public. It may be where you go to school or went to school. It may be where your kids go to school or college. It might be that number on the scale. It might be your pants or dress size. It might be being the best family or having the best yard and house or driving the best car or just being the best friend to everyone around you. You know, uh, Christians, religious people, uh, often can even justify ourselves by our holiness or by our theology. You know, especially if we spend our lives com comparing to those people out there and those families out there and how much better we are, how much we know compared 
to them. You know, along with these things, as I've said previously, for me often it is my ministry performance. It's I justify my existence through my teaching abilities, my ability to gather people, my, my, my ability to develop leaders, my one-on-one -on -one skills, the amount of maybe students that are converted in my ministry. And I ask if any of these things that I've listed, what is your identity? What are the things that you live for? You know, I often joke with my supporters and those who often ask me what it's like being a college pastor. And I always tell them, well, are you, you know, are you a college sports fan or, or a club soccer fan or anything where, you know, your happiness and identity is based on the whims of like 18 to 24-year-olds? Well, if you are, then you understand what my life is like. And of course, this all brings up the question, what is the problem with, with Babel? What is the problem with putting our identity in all these things? Well, these identities, you know, first of all, these identities are all self-consumed. They're all about us. It's always thinking about us, even if you think they're not. And then not only are they self-consumed and selfish in, in how we think about them, but also worse, these things can change at any moment. They make for a very unstable existence because things can always change. You know, people's opinions of us change constantly. Friends, boyfriends, girlfriends, spouses, family members can leave you, can hurt you, can betray you can love you one minute, then be yelling at you the next. I always laugh um, because I'm a big people pleaser. And one of my favorite examples from the Bible is in Acts. At the end of Acts, Paul uh, gets shipwrecked on an island, and, uh, and he gets bitten by a snake. And, and the people there, because he's been bitten by a snake, declare him a demon or the devil and, 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 and pure evil. But then, miraculously, Paul, because the Holy Spirit, does not die from the snake bite, but actually lives. And then those same people who are declaring him a devil are now declaring that he's God and that he's good. And I always think about that because I think about that's what life is like as a people pleaser. People will think you're the devil one minute and God the next. And, and, you, and it's totally often outside of your control. Obviously, your looks can always change. And then there's our performance in life. We can fail. You know that that we, no matter how good we are, over and over and over again, no matter how many A's we make, we can always make an F on the next test. We can always mess up at work the next day. You know, no matter how good our, we get our yard looking, you know, stuff can happen and, and we're just out of town two weeks and our yard's a total mess again. It's so unstable. And we secretly know how unstable all these things are. So guess what happens to us? It's not that we decide to then stop caring about these things or stop putting so much importance in them. No, we actually go the opposite route. We become obsessed with them. We think about them all the time. And so our purpose in life, the meaning in life, becomes making a name for ourselves through all of these things, trying to justify our existence. I have a quote here. Uh, there was kind of a study of, um, of a bunch of um, students from college, especially uh, young women from college, kind of talking about their identity and their body image and things like that. And this one stuck out with me. I think it'll be um, back here on the PowerPoint. Uh, but it goes like this. And this is a girl from UT Austin, a sophomore from UT Austin. She says this, I daily feel pressured to conform to a certain image. As a young woman, I'm expected to be beautiful, thin, poised, elegant, respectful, educated, fashionable, and mature. I should wear certain clothes, shoes, and makeup. 
I also feel expected to know the latest fashion trends, gossip, and celebrity news. In respect to men and dating, I must be fun, flirty, sexy, and exciting. These expectations and pressures are reinforced through magazines, television, movies, and friends. Together, these structures mold the image of the perfect young woman and demand all to conform. Although I'm aware of this superficial marketing technique, I still desire to look like the models in magazines and the celebrities in movies. I realize that men are attracted to numerous qualities in women, but I want most to be beautiful and sexy. And just reading that and thinking about the fact that all these things that she lists makes me feel so tired and, and feel so bad for my wife and for my daughter who live in this culture. And it makes me so sad that even though she recognizes that these things are fleeting, that these things are very unstable, that she still desires them. She still goes after them. And this is a good example of the law of Babel, the law of Babel, which is what I think most of our culture lives under, this law. And it's our culture's, I think, never-ending quest to create a law, to create rules even more difficult to obey than the Ten Commandments. And I would say the culture of our neighborhoods, the culture of our campuses, the culture of our schools, and even sometimes the culture of our churches often live by this law of Babel as well. You know, do more, be better, self-improve. Basically, you know, be better or else. And it's a, it's a constant of shame, shame, perform, perform. And so life feels like every morning we're getting up on that treadmill again and again and again. And so this Babel way, this way of Babel is legalistic. It's moralistic. It's a culture that produces shame and guilt when we fail. But even when we achieve, it produces a self-righteousness, not even a goodness. And so God shows the foolishness of Babel, you know, and our own culture, I think, by, by what does he say? He says he comes down to see the city and the tower that the children built. Because to God, this way of Babel is childish. And he disperses them. And so with that, as I've hammered on the law of Babel, what is the alternative to Babel? What is our identity? What is our purpose? What do we do with this shame of failure? You know, this fear, this insecurity, this, this understanding that, that we can't be perfect. Well, this sets us up for chapter 12 as God comes down uh, to Abram. So let me read Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we see that God will redeem the world through a people, and he chooses Abraham to be the father of these people. He reveals this plan um, and pro his plan and promises to Abram. God chooses to bless Abram. And does God choose who the law of Babel or our culture would have chosen to start a people? 
Now, if you're going to start a people that are going to change the world and redeem the world, who would you start with? Maybe a mighty man, maybe, you know, a man with a great name who's renowned, uh, you know, in the region, a man with a large family, with the perfect wife, a man who worshiped and loved God very well, you know, uh, perfectly. You know, basically you would start with some kind of ancient rock star, ancient warrior, uh, this great person who had this big name. But that's not who God chooses. God chose Abram, who is old, who has no children, whose wife is barren and past childbearing age. And Abram would be considered very weak by ancient standards, not someone to father a nation. He failed the law of Babel all throughout his life. The law of the ancient world where a man would put his identity not only in descendants, but also in his tribe and his land, which brought security and status. However, God tells Abram to leave his land, to leave his family, and to go to a land that God will give him later, but right now is inhabited by dangerous strangers. God strips Abram of any possible strength and anything he might desire to make his name in, leaving him nothing in which to put his identity, basically making it impossible for Abram to follow the law of Babel. And then, of course, God promises this stripped man several things. He promises to give this man, Abram, a land. He promises to make a nation through him. In other words, give him descendants. He promises to bless Abram and protect him. And he promises to make Abram's name great. Not that he's going to have to make his name great, but God says, I'm going to make your name great. So we see that God gives Abram this great name. That God says, your identity is in me, that you're mine, that I love you. Your identity is that I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And of course, this, this, this new name comes with a new purpose, so that Abram will be a blessing, and specifically a blessing to all the nations that have been created after Babel. God blesses Abram so that he will be free to then go be a blessing to others. God loves Abram so that Abram will be free to love others. And if you're a Christian this morning, we are children of Abram, later called Abraham. And we receive this identity and purpose of Genesis 12. And of course, more than Abram, we have multiple stories of God blessing his people throughout the scripture, ultimately seen in Jesus' life, his death on the cross for us, and his resurrection. Therefore, our identity, our name is in Christ, in his perfect love that never changes, our union with Christ that can never be taken away. God promised Abram protection. Jesus gives us eternal life. God promised Abram land. Jesus promises us a new heavens and a new earth. God promised to be with Abram. Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit who dwells within our hearts. God promised Abram a people. Jesus gives us his church. God promised Abram a great name. And Jesus gives us an amazing name, his perfect righteousness. He gives us his worth. He justifies us. He takes away our shame and guilt. And he promises to do great things through us and to glorify us. This is who we are. If you are in Christ, this is your name. 
all those things. You are in Jesus. And yet, it is so easy to forget it. I find that even when I believe God's grace is sufficient for my salvation, that God has forgiven me, I found that in the day-to-day, in my job, in my relationships with others, I still go back to the law of Babel. Be better. Do more. So I'm saved by grace for my sinfulness, but not for my poor ministry performance. I need to be better. I need to preach better. I need to socialize better. I need to be cooler. I need to study more. You know, I, I can tell myself that I know God loves me despite my sins, but then have you seen how much I weigh lately? How much weight I've gained? Have you seen how crazy my kids behaved in church this morning? Have you seen how poor my job performance has been lately? Jesus says to me, I love you, and nothing can separate me from that love. But then I live by Babel, and I look at all my friends' lives on Instagram and Facebook, and they're so much cooler and more active than my family. Their families are perfect, while mine is not. I can read that the God of the universe rejoices over me with singing, but then I know that my yard looks terrible and that my wife Lee and I have been fighting all week and that life is so chaotic. Certainly God really doesn't sing over me. And we see this with Abram in the following chapters. When real life hits, Abram quickly forgets the promises of God, quickly forgets who he is in God and decides to return to the false assumptions of Babel. He does things like give his wife to another to feel safe and gain riches. He takes a concubine to try to achieve for himself what God had promised in an heir. He did not want to wait around for God to work. He must make his name great now. He must achieve a son now. That's the way he thought. And so we see Abram struggles to remember his new identity. He, he struggles and often returns to the way of Babel. We also see here that Abram is not being a blessing when he does this to anyone. When he does these things, he puts his wife and others at risk, so much for being a blessing to others in the nations. He forgets the promises of God. He forgets his identity, and it has devastating consequences for the people he loves and even for those he does not. And it's funny, when I examine my life, the more I've pursued my own happiness, the more I've promoted my own agendas, the more I've obsessed about my performance and how people view me, the more people around me get hurt, the more I become a blessing to nobody. Because you see, the law of Babel, the law of the world, takes our desire to do the job God has called me to well. I'm going to bring the gospel to students' lives at Rhodes College, to be a loving father, a loving husband. He takes those great, amazing things and callings and changes it into a performance to make our names great. This is what the law of the Babel does. It also diminishes others. For to, be great, for to be great, that means others have to be less. So the more I obsess about my own performance, the more I obsess about others' performances too and, have, and hope that they're not as good as me. It's taking my call to proclaim Christ through my words and through my actions in this world, and it leads me to actually begin to proclaim myself instead which is not going to be a blessing to anybody. And this is a daily battle. Uh, David Foster Wallace um, wrote uh, kind of a commencement speech that's very famous on, on the internet and 
all my Rhodes College students know it very well. Um, and I think this is an interesting that he kind of, uh, he compares two ways of living. And I think it, it, it kind of is very similar to this way of Babel living and the gospel way of living. And he says it like this, and I think the quote's behind me on the wall. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merely along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom all to be lords of our tiny school-sized kingdoms alone at the center of all creation. But, of course, there are all different kinds of freedom, the kind that is most precious you will not hear much talk about in the great outside world of wanting and achieving. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and being able truly to care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad petty, unsexy ways every day. And I think this is the choice we make each and every day. The way of Babel, of achieving and consuming and grabbing, or the gospel way, the way of blessing and loving others. And when we forget who we are in Christ, we will then struggle to be a blessing because we'll then always be obsessing with our own performance instead of relying on what Jesus has done for us. And God is so great that when, like Abram, we forget all this and we lack faith and we sin and we sin, God stays true to his promises. God remains faithful to Abram again and again throughout the book of Genesis. God's grace overcomes our unbelief as he patiently and lovingly reminds us of his love. And he shapes us into people who bless others daily. I want to leave you with this picture of who our Savior is this morning. If you, at some point, if you want to read all of Mark 6 through 8, you can. But Jesus in Mark 6 through 8, after himself, Jesus suffering rejection in ministry, he sends out his 12 disciples, taking away all their comfort as he sends them out. It's very similar uh, to the story of Abram here. He sends them out with no money, with no food, with limited clothing to do ministry out of weakness. And he tells them to be okay with being rejected. And when the disciples return after a few days and tell Jesus of their successes as well as their failures, what does Jesus do? Does Jesus give them a lecture? Does he tell them to be better? Does he go frustrated by their inability to spread his word? Or, to, or you know, he puts shame upon them, you know, that you got to get better the next time? No. What does he say to them? He says to them, Go away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. He tells them, rest. Good job and rest. Not have a better yard, a cleaner house, better clothes, better car. Not get that promotion, have better sales, have better behaved kids, be holier, do the right thing. You know, no. He says, rest. Good job. And then later, as they're overwhelmed with the over 5,000 people that have showed up, Jesus shows even further what the gospel way is about as he does the great work of multiplying bread and fish. And, as he, lets the, and he lets the disciples be the instrument of blessing as they pass out the food to everyone. He makes them great as he enables them to be a blessing to others. And they, when they return to him from being a blessing, there at their feet are 12 baskets of bread and fish, 
an entire basket of food for each one of them. That is Jesus. That is the overflowing grace of the gospel. Jesus is not an accuser. He is not saying, be better, or you're worthless. He is not giving you the message of Babel. In the gospel, you are never a failure. You are free, and you are essential to his mission. And when we remember and are secure in our identity in Christ, we will find ourselves being a blessing to others in our relationships, in our jobs, fulfilling how, who God has made us to be. And so Jesus, our Savior, comes to each one of us and says, you who feel heavy burdened, not just by your sins, but also by the expectations of an accusing world, come to me and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. I thank you that you bring us rest, that you give us a great name, that you love us. And I pray that as we go out into the world this week, Lord, I pray that you will be with us, that you will encourage us that we are in you, that we are loved, that we are essential, and that you will use us to bless the world. I praise your name. Amen.